Welcome to BrainBeat, the podcast series of the National Academy of Neuropsychology, otherwise known as NAN. I'm Dr. Peter Arnett, past president of NAN, a professor at Penn State University, and I'll be your host today. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Maureen O'Connor, who will be talking with us today about caregiving and dementia. Dr. O'Connor earned her doctoral degree from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania and completed her pre-doctoral residency in neuropsychology at Yale University School of Medicine. She also pursued postdoctoral training at Cornell Weill Medical College. Dr. O'Connor is a board-certified neuropsychologist and currently the director of neuropsychology at the Bedford Veterans Hospital and assistant professor of neurology at Boston University. Her research interests are focused on Alzheimer's disease and include the development of treatment interventions designed to improve patient functioning and reduce caregiver burden. Dr. O'Connor is a past winner of the Young Alumni Achievement Award from the College of Natural Sciences and Mathematics at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. She served on the board of NAN as well as the Massachusetts Neuropsychological Society. Welcome, Dr. O'Connor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. And just to kind of get us started here, can you describe who a typical dementia caregiver is? Sure. So the typical dementia caregiver is themselves uh, an older adult. About one third of dementia caregivers are over 65 years old. So, mm-hmm. you know, they might be dealing with their own health issues or cognitive concerns. Mm-hmm. These folks are largely informal, untrained, and unpaid caregivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we're talking family and, and friends. Most dementia caregivers are women. Most live with the person with dementia and are themselves employed. About 25% of caregivers are what we call a sandwich generation of caregivers. These are individuals that are caring for their aging loved one, often an aging parent with cognitive difficulties, while also caring for young children. And I think an interesting thing to note is that there's about an estimated 250,000 children and young adults between Mm -hmm. the ages of 8 and 18 that also help to provide care for somebody with dementia. Uh, So often Mm -hmm. these grandchildren or other family members that are helping with the care of their loved one. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like it's really demanding, and especially for the sandwich group that you mentioned. And I'm just curious, like, what's the impact of being a caregiver in terms of affecting people's emotional functioning, general mental health, physical kinds of problems, and so forth? Dementia caregivers certainly have higher rates of issues with their physical health and their emotional well-being compared to non-caregivers, but also compared to caregivers of other populations, for example, people with medical conditions, cancer, et cetera. And we know that caregivers often take really good care of their loved ones, but delay their own health care needs and their Mm -hmm. own psychological and emotional needs. Many caregivers experience high rates of depression and anxiety. They rate their stress levels as very high. And then there are also social consequences of caregiving, changes in occupational status, financial strain, isolation, reduced time for, you know, their own leisure activities. And and of course, all of that compounds these health consequences. Mm -hmm. And do most people get some kind of support or help, whether professional help or, you know, I don't know what the data 
suggest in terms of getting support from family members, friends, professional resources, and so forth? But maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. What I would say is every dementia caregiver should, and many don't. And that is one of the things that we are highly focused on in our work with our dementia caregivers. So how would one go about getting help if they're a dementia caregiver? What kinds of resources are there out there for people? In my work with dementia caregivers, the point that I really try to get across is that you can't do this alone and it takes a team. And so in the individual work that I do with dementia caregivers, I spend a lot of time helping them to build this care team. And that mm-hmm. starts with, you know, their healthcare providers, but also as, you know, you sort of hinted to includes friends, family members. We talk about the role that neighbors can play in helping to provide care for their loved one. Things like joining support groups. Certainly, the National Alzheimer's Association is a wonderful resource that we tell all of our caregivers to become involved in. The National Alzheimer's Association has groups that are in person, online platforms, Mm -hmm. online groups, individual work, a helpline, uh, but also Mm -hmm. other community resources through, you know, centers on aging and other opportunities that exist in the community where they can find support groups and individual support if that's something that they need as well. That's encouraging. Now, are there certain topics that are particularly difficult for families to discuss, like for the person not being able to drive anymore or having to move outside the home, talking about end-of-life care? I would assume all of those are somewhat challenging, but just like to maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Yeah, transition points are always hard for dementia caregivers. So, you know, we're thinking at the time of initial diagnosis, the new onset of behavioral symptoms, having to make decisions about things that you mentioned, like driving cessation or when Mm -hmm. to move a loved one outside the home or Mm -hmm. going through end of life uh, decisions. So we want to be particularly mindful of these transition points and sort of appreciate and understand that these are times that caregivers can be particularly vulnerable to the negative effects of caregiving. And are the caregivers typically in the session where you might talk about the possibility that the person should stop driving and do they play some role in that process? I would think that would be a really important sort of demarcation point for independence that would be somewhat challenging. Yeah, so we have conversations about driving cessation quite frequently. Often in my office, these conversations are based on performance on tests of memory and thinking that are uh, associated with driving safety. We'll make recommendations for formal driving evaluations, which is really the gold standard for understanding driving safety and provide resources from the Hartford Age Lab, which provides sort of a very good set of online resources to help older individuals navigate driving cessation. This is a difficult conversation. So being sensitive to the fact that this often means, you know, a loss of independence for the person, part of that conversation should involve 
planning and problem solving for how the person will be able to get around and continue to engage in activities, even if they are no longer able to drive themselves. That can be, I would say, one of the more difficult conversations that we have with our families. I would think that would involve significant planning. If I think you had mentioned that a lot of caregivers are still working. And so if they now have to be responsible for getting their family member with dementia around to different places, I would think that that would add an extra burden to the caregiving uh, routine. That's right. And this is where I think our concept of a care team really comes into play, you know, thinking about who is it other than the caregiver that may be able to provide some assistance and support around getting the person to day programming or Mm -hmm. getting them out with friends to socialize. Uh, You know, it, it is a challenge for these things to all be managed by one person. Yeah, I would imagine so. I would imagine it would vary a lot depending on whether a person lived in a more urban area versus being in a rural location where there might not be as many resources, things may be farther apart. Are those issues that you have to deal with? I'm sure you probably have patients who come in from the outlying areas who live in more rural areas, and you find that these things are more challenging for people who may live in these more rural locations? Yes, absolutely. So many of our caregivers live in more urban or suburban environments where it's sort of more easily accessible resources. But we also have a teleneuropsychology clinic here at the hospital that specifically services our rural older adults and families. And it can be much more difficult to try to get their needs met. You know, often the closest opportunity to engage in a day program is two hours away from Mm -hmm. where someone in rural Maine might be living, for example. So one of the projects that we just received some funding for is to try to understand the needs of these rural families and then try to create some opportunities for engagement in telehealth-supportive services. We have a teleneuropsychology clinic where we do evaluations for dementia, but we are trying to take that next step to create a system of care for individuals with dementia and their families that can be accessed via telehealth, which of course comes with its own challenges. Not everybody, for example, has Wi-Fi to do video visits, right. but you know we can also think about telehealth as telephone visits and that type of, type of thing. So that that is something we are trying to build right now here in our hospital. Fantastic. Yeah, it seems like that would really broaden the reach for care. And I'm wondering, like, is this something not necessarily unique to your hospital, but would you say it's fairly unusual for hospitals to have the resources to do this kind of telehealth, this kind of outreach, or is that becoming a more standard model for a lot of a lot of places? Yes. So I will tell you that my colleague who created our tele-neuropsychology clinic spoke at NAN a number of years ago, uh, I want to say in 2019, tele-neuropsychology. And she was one person on a panel of several that was sort of like unusual careers, you know, in neuropsychology. And then COVID hit. And so people were sort of thrust into an environment where they had to create these teleneuropsychology clinics learn to do teleneuropsychology visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it had been something that we had been doing for a number of years, you know, but I think now offering healthcare via video and via phone 
has become much more integrated into our healthcare system. It's much more of a standard of care. And so, you know, thinking about how we can continue to build on those systems for the benefit of people that have barriers to accessing in-person care it is, I think, really critical. Yeah, it seems like that was one of the silver linings of COVID is that many providers had to get used to using telehealth and patients as well. And so now we kind of have at least a model for proceeding with that. It's good to know that that's even impacted things like uh, dementia care. So that's that's great to hear. Now, if you had one tip to offer somebody, you know, a dementia caregiver, what would that be? Maybe not one tip, but, you know, a couple of different things that would be tops on the list. Yeah, I think the thing that I share with my dementia caregivers routinely that is the most important message I feel like I can give them is, you know, you can't do it alone. So I I like the phrasing, you can't pour from an empty cup. Often our dementia caregivers are so involved in caring for their loved one that they're not caring for themselves. And understanding that if you don't care for yourself, you can't provide the best care to your loved one with dementia. Mm -hmm. It sort of helps the idea of taking time for yourself become another part of serving the person, another part of caring Mm -hmm. for the other. So Mm -hmm. I, I think that is like, the biggest tip for dementia caregivers, you know, you can't do it alone. You need to take time for yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. You need to mm-hmm. care for your own physical and emotional needs. And I worked with one caregiver who said, oh, right. Like I learned that if I don't put my oxygen mask on when the plane's in trouble, I won't be able to help anyone with theirs. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like Love a good brilliant way to to think mm-hmm. yeah that's fantastic and i love the idea of you know just thinking about not being able to pour from an empty cup that's it seems like a great analogy now do you find that people are generally open to getting support it seems like it would be pretty critical in terms of the quality of care somebody might be able to provide for their loved one just taking care of themselves do you find that people are open to that or it probably varies a lot i would imagine but i'm just curious as to whether people you know how people respond to that kind of suggestion Yeah, I think people are more open to it when they start to appreciate that they're not going to be able to provide good care if they're burnt out and and depressed and anxious or if they get sick. So Mm -hmm. again, I do think this sort of framing taking care of themselves as a way to serve the other can be helpful. Mm -hmm. I find that caregivers that I work with often want the support. Mm -hmm. Part of the barrier can be making time. So there is, I think, a receptivity to and a desire to get support. And then the Mm -hmm. next barrier is how are we going to find the time? How are we going to park the place for you to Mm -hmm. support you? Right. Fantastic. Well, is there anything else that's important that you would want to communicate to dementia caregivers or something that stands out that maybe we haven't talked about so far? You know, the one other piece that I think is important in the work that I do that I try to keep in mind and that I think is sort of important for dementia caregivers themselves to keep in mind is that the relationship that the caregiver has to the person with dementia has a long history. It really Mm -hmm. predates the caregiving relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, these are daughters and sons and Mm -hmm. spouses and siblings. And, you know, that pre-existing relationship can be complex, can be challenging. Uh, Sometimes those relationships aren't 
always good or strong relationships. And sometimes, you know, they're great relationships. And I think that keeping in mind and considering that these relationships are pre-existing and thinking about those dynamics and how they might come into play is important. Also sort of thinking through how we're going to help our caregivers and our persons with dementia maintain a connection as the disease progresses is Mm -hmm. another important area of focus that is sometimes, I think, not discussed as Mm -hmm. much. Yeah, it seems really important to think about it more as a fluid kind of uh, a relationship. This is not something that's going to be static over time. There are going to be changes in how the person is functioning and how the caregiver is going to respond to that functioning. And it seems like a very sort of fluid dynamic. So, yeah, well, that's very, very helpful advice. And I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for joining us with the Brainbeat podcast. That's going to be really valuable information, I think, for our, our listeners. Great. Thanks so much. This podcast series is sponsored by the NAN Foundation, which can be contacted through our website, nanfoundation.org. The NAN Foundation relies on donations, so please see the website for more information. Follow our BrainBeat podcast on Twitter, X, at BrainBeatPod.